This episode of Untold Stories is sponsored by Paraswap. You'll hear more about them later on in this episode. What is up, everyone? I am Charlie Shrem. You are listening and watching another awesome episode of Untold Stories, where together, twice a week, we get to dive deep with some of crypto's most influential leaders, Bitcoin's greatest thinkers, OGs, folks who are running huge corporations, publicly traded companies, institutions, and those who are still running Bitcoin companies a decade later out of their basement. Uh, we get to talk to uh, heads of state. We get to talk to some of the coolest. My doctors come on the show, you know, too, to talk about my mental health and my physical health. You know, it's like, hey, we have to give like check up on Charlie and stuff like that. Um, it's, a, it's a great show. And, and, and happy new year, everyone. 2022. I can't believe episode, I think like 251. We've been together uh, on this crazy journey for almost like three years now. And Actually, that's a really good segue to to introduce my guest, Brandon Quidham. Brandon, thank you so much for coming on Untold Stories today. You are the director of communications for Swan Bitcoin, but more importantly, you're a, you're a thinker. And speaking of like time and years and stuff like that, you write about um, the fourth turning and kind of this thing that is a crazy quote that was written a long time ago, and and talks about how this like huge. Uh, society change that I've been talking about on the show uh, actually started in World War II. And we're kind of going through that fourth stage of that now. Can you kind of go into that a little bit? And thanks yeah, for coming thanks, on the Charlie. show. Really appreciate you having me on. And just a quick tangent before we get into the fourth turning. Um, when I was going down the proverbial Bitcoin rabbit hole, of course, I was just consuming all the content I could get my hands on. And this was in 2017. And I remember watching all the documentaries and hearing about this Charlie guy in Vid Instant. And so I had a, a very, it's very surreal for me talking to you now, just with all the history and, and your place in Bitcoin's history. So thank you. So uh, it's much. an honor. Thank you for having me. And it's cool that you're still active and, and it's great to chat with you. So, okay, fourth turning. Uh, this is a book written in the late 90s by a historian and a demographer, someone who studies demographics. And they essentially looked at the long scope of history. And through that process, they observed certain different cycles that appear to be consistent throughout human civilization. And in this book, they focused on demographic cycles. So what are these cohorts of population born during a tight, narrow band of time? And we can look at these generations and you can, let's say the millennials or Gen Z, Gen X, whatever. We can look at these groups of people and say, what do they have in common? Right. And so they built this whole thesis, this whole framework based on these different demographic groups and essentially what is the mood at the time. Right. The thesis identifies how do people respond to catalysts based on the certain demographics in which stage of life they're in. And so through this thesis, it identifies that we're at the very end of this long cycle, roughly an 80 year cycle. And the previous time we were in the same historical parallel would be uh, between 1929 and 1945. So that's the previous fourth turning. It's a period of uh, mm. chaos and change. And our whole exterior world gets reimagined, usually through war. And then after war, we sort of reshuffle the pieces together. We redo our, our finance, we redo our banking system, our healthcare, our government, all that kind of stuff is up for grabs. And so through this thesis, the authors identified that around, uh, around 2008, we transitioned into this newest fourth turning. Um, and they, each turning lasts about 20 to 25 years. So 
uh, roughly another decade until they assume we'll be finished with this thesis. And so it's essentially um, at the end of World War II, we recreated this world. This is IMF, World Bank, Bretton Woods, FDIC insurance, uh, all kinds of these programs that were previously unthinkable. And then we have a period of peace and, and just everyone's chilling out after the war. That's uh, you know post-World War II period. And then eventually the cycle moves on and, and we start to realize that our exterior world is not working for us. Our institutions are crumbling. Uh, there's very low trust in our institutions. And people kind of want to, people recognize that the world around us is crumbling and it's time to make a change. And that's where we're at now. That's why you see so many people uh, collectivizing. That's why you see power centralizing, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's as if our species recognizes the only way to make a hard change is to come together and, and do something big. And so that's where we are now. Uh, it's kind of a crazy time. It's a volatile time. Uh, and I'll leave it at that for now. It's almost scary that Satoshi foresaw the coming within 10 years, uh, giving us the tools to create the whole crypto world that we have today. I mean, without him and without those early tools, without the early days of Bitcoin, we wouldn't have the reinvention of money as we have it today. Like, let's be real. Let's look at COVID as maybe that, that black swan event that created the, the, the that maybe like uh, fast-tracked this turning point that we're going in this whole change. And all of a sudden, you know, we lose trust in institutions. We lost, I mean, let's, let's be real. The, the, the past few years of COVID is, if we're, if we're being looked at from like an alien population, it's shameful. We should be ashamed of ourselves as a race because it was supposed to have been an event that brought us together. Our institutions should have been more balanced and we should have had a, a certain amount of distrust, but also, also a healthy amount of trust as well. It should have been a perfect balance and the world should have come together and we should have kind of went through that the way uh, we would have assumed if a pandemic would have hit the earth, you know, in 2015, how we would have dealt with, but we didn't. And so do you kind of see, like, like you said, institutions falling, it's not just with public health, it's public money, it's public uh, information. It's, it's public everything as a utility. I mean, where do we go from here? Yeah, it's a good question. And I, I wrote this essay, Bitcoin and the Rhythms of History, right? Exploring Bitcoin through this fourth turning thesis. And initially, when I wrote this essay in 2020, I, I thought that the COVID uh, response was going to unite the people, like you said, right? We have this common enemy. Let's work together. Let's put aside our differences and let's get through this thing. And that's certainly not what we saw. And I think the main reason, to your point, is due to lack of trust in institutions. And that that's a very, uh, you know, it's easy for us to sit here and say that, but um, where is that coming from? Why is that happening? And I think there's actually a pretty logical reason, which is that the institutions that we don't trust that are quote crumbling right now, they were built about 70 years ago, right at the tail end of World War II. Yeah. And so I think it's pretty natural for institutions to decay over time. And why is that? Well, one, because we were we were trying to solve problems 70 years ago that don't exist or that didn't even, or sorry, our problems today didn't exist when we built our institutions. That's one problem. The next thing is that there's uh, this human nature tendency to uh, just due to our incentives to jump into an institution and um, eventually humans greed or, or a lesser, uh, not just greed, but sort of our lesser impulses take over in these institutions and they just decay over time. It's entirely natural. And just like in a forest, 
there's periodic natural forest fires and that natural forest fire burns the underbrush, recycles nutrients and makes way for future growth. This is a period where we need to just clean out the decrepit institutions and rebuild with a, a little bit more, uh, a better vantage point of what we need to deal with in 2022. Unfortunately, though, it had to be done with like a lot of people losing their lives, losing like, you know, like long-term mental health, things like that. Um, but you're right. So now we have these tools, right? We have Bitcoin and and you're the, uh, uh, you run Swan Bitcoin, which has so many different uh, branches. You have Swan Private, which is more of a consumer-focused platform uh, you have for large buyers, though, like if people are, you're helping people put Bitcoin on their balance sheets, you have, if you go to Bitcoin Treasury, dot uh, org i think you can see like dozens and dozens of of large scale like publicly traded companies and institutions that are holding like bitcoin on their balance sheet um you also have swan advisor services which you're uh, uh helping a lot of these companies do that so we have bitcoin as that tool we have the larger crypto ecosystem that's still in the building tools because you know decentralization is a path and it takes you have to get there and so we're building out these maybe next level tools for that next level, a level of the internet. How can we like, but that doesn't help me in terms of like the health public institutions or how our governments are run or how wars are waged. We're still waging wars and things like that. That's not changing any of that yet. Or is it, or is it, am I impatient? Yeah. A couple of things there. So uh, one, I'll, I'll, actually I'll adjust your, your last question first, which is, okay, the institutions aren't doing well world kind of feels disjointed, there's lack of trust, there's all these issues. How does Bitcoin play a role here? And I identify sort of two main problems in our world right now. One is that uh, the world is chaotic and people demand order. We actually do want strong institutions and we're leaning on our institutions, but they appear to be failing us. And in my opinion, they don't deserve our trust right now. So we need to get some more trust in the world, AKA more stronger institutions. Okay. Simultaneously, the other problem is that the financial system is at the end of a long-term credit cycle. Um, Ray Dalio popularized this concept, but the short answer is our financial system is at the end of the, the line and it's time to start over. This has happened countless times throughout history. We're not unique here. Um, and so we have to redo our financial system and we need stronger institutions. So from my perspective, I see Bitcoin uniquely satisfying both of the key problems. Right, new financial system, great. Bitcoin obviously is a potential solution for that. It's a new non-sovereign, no trust needed base layer money that the whole world can speak the same economic language that comes with a whole host of benefits for modern times. And then the other side, which is a little bit more subtle and I think equally as important, is the fact that individuals want to trust institutions and we, yeah, we want do. them because they actually do hold society together. Now you could argue, uh, should we have central banks or should we have governments, depending on where you are in that political spectrum? But the reality is most people today demand strong institutions. So how is Bitcoin an institution? Okay, well, Bitcoin's actually uh, a sort of like a government all in Oh, the box, Bitcoin is the right? institution. Jeez, Bitcoin I never thought about it like this before. Holy mackerel. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's a property rights in a box, right? It's the judge, jury, and executioner all executed in a single insular protocol upon which anyone in the world can leverage when they want to. And so I, I see that as a solution we can trust, right? If you don't like your politician, no problem. Don't trust the politician, trust the code, right? Don't trust central bankers, trust the automated central bank, 
right? We can come up with all these little lenses here, but it is an institution in the sense that we can outsource trust. It, it facilitates a lot of needs in society. And I think we can rebuild as Bitcoin as the base monetary protocol for civilization. And this not only helps individuals, but this helps our entire species. Okay, how is that possible? Well, let's take one example. Right now, there's capital markets, as in if you're an entrepreneur, you can get capital for your business in a very small percentage of the world. Most countries don't have access to capital. So if you live in Zimbabwe and you're an amazing entrepreneur, maybe you don't have access to funding to get your awesome, amazing idea off the ground. Right. So with Bitcoin in, in a uh, Bitcoinized world, you can draw capital from anywhere in the world to to get that person access. And if that happens, OK, new ideas are going to be brought to market. Most of them are going to fail, but the best ones are going to change society. And so it actually increases our ability to cooperate, increases our ability as a species to identify good ideas, bring them into reality. And then we all benefit from that process. And so I foresee a future where. Uh, right now, we're sort of playing the nation state game, right? Which nation state has the most power? I, I see a world where Bitcoin empowers the individual at the expense of the state. So it sort of puts symmetry between state and individual. And that allows greater cooperation outside of our sort of siloed government state uh, apparatus. And I think that will increase cooperation, productivity, wealth, and sort of raise up the bottom tier of society and produce untold innovations that are, that are hard to imagine right now. Um, I'll pause on that before I touch on Swan. If you have anything you want to touch on, uh, well, I just response. wanted I want to understand if if the fact that Bitcoin is the institution now and not trying to be what the re what the rest of the crypto world is trying to be, if that's what makes Bitcoin great, is that it can be this long term. Let's hey, the cycle is now beginning. It's going to be a hundred year cycle again. Who knows what's going to be after that? Uh, but the cycle is now beginning. And we need a public money, a people's money. I hate. To, I used to say that early in the people, you know, communism and socialism stuff like that. You can't put the word "peoples" in front of anything; automatically becomes like a thing. But um, yeah, I just I want to understand a little bit more into that because proof of work to me still is the best transfer of energy into like a public battery system that we call Bitcoin. It's the it's the next wave, the next level. And it, and it used to be that I was getting on here and people were convincing me that proof of stake was better and this was better and that was better. But now the messaging has been changing. I have my friends who are the founders of Ethereum changing their, changing their, uh, uh, their tune to say more of like, yes, Charlie, we, we agree with you that decentralization is a path, a journey, and therefore proof of work is the best way to get the best decentralization distribution. But this is where we fork. It's like over a long term, uh, we believe that proof of stake is better for this or this or that reason. And I don't. It's like, you know, when like religions fork and they create two religions or whatever. But do you think that maybe that all of this religious maximalism is uh, something good for the whole ecosystem? Yeah. So a couple of things to unpack. One, um, the people's money. I thought that was a really interesting comment you made. And I think that, yeah, there's some emotionally charged language there, but the reality is Bitcoin is a shared public good. It's not owned by one individual and everyone can participate. So in that sense, it is a public institution. Um, Bitcoin versus the rest of crypto, I think that's a really interesting debate. I think that's sort of being played out right now on Twitter in real time. 
And what do I think about that? I think that Bitcoin is actually separate and almost unrelated from the wider crypto space. I think Bitcoin uh, design trade-offs make it money first. And by being a good base money, it, it necessarily sacrifices the ability to be uh, expressible or programmable at the base layer. So it becomes a good money at the expense of being a poor platform. And then the crypto side, they come at it from a more tech focused perspective, right? This is uh, endless innovation. And, and at that lens, you have to sacrifice things like the centralization, immutability, and long-term trust in the protocol. And I think that both camps made the correct choice to optimize for their unique use cases. And so, yes, I, I think Bitcoin's unique. I think a large part of that is proof of work. Um, it's not the only part, obviously, but uh, proof of work's important. Very and important. It's probably the most misunderstood aspect of the entire industry. Right? Um, I have the yeah. formula on my whiteboard in my office and, and a proof of work should have gotten the Nobel Peace Prize. Like proof of work is the invention. The Byzantine general's problem. Like that is, if you take that out of crypto, what's the point? That's what I tell people. I don't understand. I completely agree. And I'll say just to be charitable, because I know your audience are, are very diverse, which of is course, I proof am of too. stake. Yeah. And proof of stake is fine. Um, it's not fine for base money. Okay. Proof of stake, theoretically, it's more efficient, but that's efficient. Okay. Let's say it is more efficient. Okay. Fine. But at a certain point, uh, yeah, at a certain point, you become more vulnerable and proof of stake centralizes over time. And so I, I consider proof of stake a 30 year system. I consider Bitcoin a 300 year system. And that's just simply due to the fact that if an attacker was trying to change the ledger and proof of work, the users have a way to attack back and regain control of the network. In a proof of stake system, if the, the primary economic stake colludes against you, the users don't really have a choice. And so um, again, fine for technology, not more like a tech company, but not fine for base money. And so I think that's something that we should, uh, we should focus on. I think we should just separate them in our minds. They have different goals. Um, and another, another, another interesting way to attack this problem is that some people think that Bitcoin is boomer coin, right? It's boring. It's not as innovative. Boomer coin. Oh, that's great. And which is funny. Does that make me a uh, boomer? It <laughs> makes me a boomer then for yeah. sure. Um, but there's some truth to that in the sense that in the protocol layer, it's not as exotic. It's not as sexy. It doesn't do all these fancy things, blah, blah, blah. However, what makes Bitcoin interesting is precisely the fact that the protocol layer is simple. And what, is that, what does that give us? Right? The implications of Bitcoin are, are the interesting part. The implications of a monetary system that humans can't mess with. That is so incredibly profound. And I think a lot of people miss the profundity of that simply because they don't understand money well enough. They don't understand uh, the context around this innovation to, to deeply understand it. And so taking money away from governments, or at least having a parallel system that governments can't mess with, that has infinite potential outcomes for our species. And I think that's where Bitcoiners mostly spend their time. We say, okay, Bitcoin separates from state. What does that mean? And, and that's a quite interesting conversation where the crypto side would be more like, uh, what cool new tricks can you do with this thing? Mm. And I think that both ecosystems will probably exist long-term. Um, I personally care more about the problem of separating money from state, giving universal property rights to everyone on the planet 
that that's a mission I'm excited about. I think it's important. And I think it's a, a, probably a thousand or 10,000 times more important than any of the hopes and dreams coming out of crypto land. Um, those are nice to haves. Bitcoin is imperative. Sorry to interrupt your regularly scheduled programming, but I wanted to tell you guys that if you're using PancakeSwap, Uniswap, DYDX, SushiSwap, you're doing it wrong. You need to be using PowerSwap because PowerSwap is a user interface, a decentralized smart contract platform that sits on top of all of these. And when you go to PowerSwap or untoldstories.link forward slash PowerSwap, because they're refunding your gas, if you go there, then you'll be able to, on top of Ethereum, Binance Smart Chain and Polygon look for the best prices for your tokens and swap and do everything in one predefined transaction on chain. Instead of having to do the approval to this token, to that token, to do all these different things, Paraswap does it all for you. It's decentralized. They just released their API version five that you can see everything. It's all open source. Very cool stuff. Untoldstories.link forward slash Paraswap. If you're using any of the other decentralized protocols, you're doing it wrong because you need to be using the routing, beautiful Paraswap routing system, and it's fully decentralized too. It's gorgeous. I'll talk to you guys soon. Traditionally, when you have from, from the time that you're born until uh, you're in your 20s or 30s, the first time that you have access to an asset that is considered a, a universal property, for example, or something that is like this, this, this asset that can never be taken away from you. You can borrow against it. It'll grow with inflation of the world. If governments fall and rise, people fall and rise, that property should, you know, continue to, to be part of that next has been your house, your house, your, your first home. Like that's how upward mobility. And I'll just give you an example of someone very dear to me, a very, very close friend of mine. He has a very successful startup business and makes a, a, a low six-figure amount, but still in today's market can't actually get a home. They can't get a house. I mean, they've gotten pre-approved now finally, and there's a whole rigmarole with finding properties, cash. It's insane. But, you know, we were joking the other day and he's like, Charlie, thank God I bought that Bitcoin seven, eight years ago. Because without that, Wait, just one Bitcoin. That's all he bought. Just one Bitcoin. That one Bitcoin that he bought, 2013, has allowed him and his family to sleep at night every single night for the past seven years, eight years, every single night knowing that they'll be okay. And that's what, give, that's what Bitcoin has given me and everyone else who owns some of it. Uh, and is that what you're talking about when it comes to universal property rights? We want everyone in the world to have that same feeling. Yeah, exactly right. A couple of important points. One, when I say universal property rights, the key point there is that everyone on our planet has access to the same property rights system. Okay, what does that mean? Well, most people that listen to this probably, at least most people in my network, are uh, living in the United States or in other developed countries. In those countries, let's say Western Europe, the US, some other countries, um, there's strong property rights, meaning individuals have access to uh, maybe land or financial assets or Bitcoin or any of these things. Those are ways to save their wealth, the fruits of their label, labor in an asset that, generally speaking, uh, doesn't get debased too fast. And the governments don't come and steal it out of your back pocket very often. Um, now you go to countries like, uh, let's say, Venezuela or Argentina, Cyprus, Greece, Turkey, 
uh, along North Korea, along hosts of other countries where the, the citizens are uh, forced to obey the, the rules of an authoritarian government. And in that sense, their bank accounts get seized. They don't have access to financial assets to store their wealth. And so that all the citizens are running on a treadmill without the ability to store the fruits of their labor into the future. And now with Bitcoin, anyone can do this separate from their government. They don't have to suffer the fate of a failing government or a failing bank in their local jurisdiction. Instead, they can opt out. They can store their wealth in this other system. That has profound implications for the entire planet. It's the best thing for humanitarianism uh, that's ever been invented as far as I'm concerned. Now, back to your, your specific point in the U.S., um, I think just generally speaking, young people do not have hope for the future. Oh. Right? You can see this. Why don't you be blunt? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can see this. Let's take one example. I think everyone feels this in the West, but let's take an example of our media. Okay. What's the most popular genre? Things like zombie apocalypse, the world's ending, all these scary things. Uh, when yeah. we talk about space, we don't talk about hopes and dreams. We talk about an alien race coming or we, we killed ourselves, right? So the, the, the whole zeitgeist is, is not optimistic. And what does that do to young people? It does a lot of poor things to young people. Young people aren't having kids. They're not buying homes. They're, they're suffering from what I would consider nihilism, right? There's no hope for the future. So let's just party and burn this thing down. And that's not a good way to build a civilization. Just party and burn this thing down. Yeah. Free money. And I understand. Yeah. I, no, I, I came from that, that frame of mind. And I think introducing Bitcoin into my life um, was a source of hope, right? It gives you a it gives you something to look forward to. And it, it's not a practical sense of okay, the Bitcoin's price is going up, so my wealth goes up along with it. Obviously, that's part of it. Then you can start planning for the future, but it's also about a community that's based in optimism. It's a community that sees a better world. It attracts incredibly intelligent people from diverse walks of life coming to work on this thing to build a better future. And just being immersed in that type of environment changes your whole outlook. And so and from that lens, I think that Bitcoin is hope, um, a term popularized by Michael Saylor, but many of us have been beating this drum for a long time. Um, and so young people you see their lives transformed by interacting with this thing. And that brings up a whole nother question. How could a, a white paper and some software change people's lives so profoundly? And I don't have the answer to that question, but it, it appears to be a force of nature and humans um, interacting with it dramatically alter the course of their lives. The, the best trading advice, the best secrets to the universe, the best tips, the best under the best, like, the best information that I've ever given my listeners ever is this right now. Understand the Bitcoin white paper, print it out and you have to, and I don't care if it's me who teaches it to you, but someone who fundamentally understands the who, what, where, why, and when of every paragraph. It's very short. It's not even a, a couple dozen pages. It's very, not even that very short. Just understand the world that, that Satoshi was living in that kind of, the run up to the to the white paper and then understand proof of work understand the wargaming involved of crypto in general you need to understand that a lot of these cryptocurrencies that are being created today are still like throwing shit at the wall to see what sticks that have crazy market caps and i, I invest and buy them and work for them and i'm involved just just like everyone else but at least 
and I'm trying to be out here preaching to people, especially going into 2022, we can be going through crazy hyperbolic rises and crazy insane pumps and dumps. I don't know what could be going through, but I want to separate Bitcoin versus the rest. I always want everyone to understand that the rest is fun and it's great and it's cool for the now. Uh, but I wouldn't be holding any, I wouldn't be having any more than five-year investment plans in, in, in any of these things uh, personally just because I don't know what the world is going to be like five years from now. And a lot of these coins, too, are subject to the same freezing, the same account takeover, the same reversing, the same double spending problems that all the traditional currencies have anyways. So the media in the world is going to push the same information that Bitcoin is bad and crypto is good because they want you to put your wealth into crypto and not into Bitcoin because when it's in crypto, they can control it. Now, again, I own crypto and Bitcoin, but I just want everyone to understand the differences. That's literally my job here today is to help everyone understand everything all the time. Yeah, well said, Baron. I, I agree with pretty much everything that you just you just covered. I think that's very good advice, right? There's a lot of new people. When you're new, it's really hard to differentiate between Bitcoin, Ethereum, and the other 10,000 other assets. And so having disclaimers and having honest conversations really goes a long way. Yeah. And a couple of points I'd like to highlight here, one about decentralization. And so the, the thing that makes Bitcoin unique is the fact that no one can change the rules, right? Every other monetary system, eventually the humans got in control of the money system. It works for a little while. And then eventually uh, they make a change to the system, whether for greed to benefit themselves or because something bad happens and the state genuinely wants to step in and help. But by helping in the short term, they actually undermine the longevity of the system in the long term. Yeah. So Bitcoin cannot be changed. That's what makes it amazing. And with regards to the other protocols, um, they, they're not quite like that. They don't have this ability to resist a state level attack. They don't even have the ability to resist an internal mutiny amongst users. And it's playing out right now in the crypto markets, right? Um, Let's, let's take Ethereum, for example. I think Ethereum is actually in an interesting position because what we're finding is that Ethereum is the most decentralized among smart contract platforms, yeah. right? By far. It's um, going through that change as, now. Yeah, it's not as decentralized as Bitcoin, not even remotely close, but it's way more decentralized than, let's say, Solana or Binance Smart Chain, right? And so theoretically, users care about decentralization. But what the market's showing us is that in the smart contract wars, they don't actually care about decentralization. Users want UX, they want low fees, they want it to be easy and cool. And there's a concern there because decentralization only matters when you really need it, right? It's like everything's going fine and then the attack comes and you get the rug pulled out from underneath you. Yeah. And so Ethereum is a worse money than Bitcoin and less decentralized than Bitcoin but more than the others. But we're seeing all the users leave to go to these other chains. And so Ethereum is sort of in this weird middle spot. Um, and I don't know how that plays out. I'm not yeah, I don't know how it plays out. Means there. Actually, we just I just did a whole episode on this uh, about like, you know, what the, uh, I call it the bullish case for Ethereum or like what the future of Ethereum is going to be focusing on that. We did that too in another, to give myself a shameless plug, we did another episode about a blockchain, Steam, which was so great for a short time. It was like the uh, utopia of crypto communities that I was part of, but then hostile takeovers and a system where there was no ability for the community to take over when someone externally tried to come in 
and then buy, you know, the whole community and change it into what it was. And then how that community actually split, created its whole new token, whole new community, and then Hive, and then actually has a bigger market cap than the one that it was. We did that whole episode. That was a great with Starkers. Um, I love, I mean, 2021 was such a crazy year for our industry, but I thought it was a very positive year. We went through a lot of stress testing, but came out of the other side, like still, hey, it's, we're still here and great. Yeah, yeah, definitely agree with that. Um, two points. One, <laughs> you mentioned about how people are getting into the space and they're new and it's crazy and, and what can you teach them? I think one really interesting meta point, if we zoom out, is that uh, Bitcoin and the whole cryptocurrency space, they're actually teaching an entire generation about investing, about money, about finance, about governments. And that education is not coming from the existing channels. In fact, our existing education system is incredibly unprepared for the future we're heading into. And so on one hand, that's very good, right? Young people are learning all these hard lessons by speculating on Steam or the wrong asset. And they may lose a couple thousand bucks, and that might be the best educational lesson they got. Good there, point. Right. And so there, there's a lot of, you know, bathing by the fire or whatever the analogy is. Um, and also simultaneously, I think this is good, right? Young people are going to be educated when they're young and they can use that for the rest of their life. Um, some people get burned, but that's the cost of doing business. And on the other hand, as we rebuild a new financial system, we're also making the same mistakes that the current builders of the financial system made over the last 400 years. And it's just sped up in a cycle. And so it's kind of a funny parallel. It's We're fun just gonna, to watch, oh, yeah. Oops, can't do that. It is fun to watch. Um, and then the next question or the next point you made about the year, I agree. It feels like a um, overall chaotic year from a geopolitical standpoint. But from a Bitcoin standpoint, I think it was an extremely positive year. And the one thing I want to highlight is China. Okay, there was always this risk looming over our heads that China controlled the majority of the hash rate, right? They had a very large percentage. Yeah. And how China operates is they can essentially take any private company under the state's rule and sort of marshal the companies to do what big China wants to do. And so there was always this potential attack vector from China attacking the mining, uh, Bitcoin through the mining network. Then China made what I'm going to call the biggest blunder in 100 years. They kicked out all the miners, okay? And what does that mean? Well, hash rate in Bitcoin dropped by about 50%. So very scary time, but half the security system went offline. Six months later, we're at a new all-time high of hash rate. All the miners moved to more friendly jurisdictions. They entrenched into long-term relationships with governments who support them. And so we simultaneously squashed the biggest risk, China attacking the network, and we've reproved the fact that hash rate can migrate, number two, and that hash rate is now sitting in more friendly jurisdictions. So it actually made the network more decentralized and more secure for future attacks. That is headline news. That is incredibly resilient. No computer network in the world could, could achieve something like that. And so I think we should celebrate China and their blunder. And then we have to say, <laughs> why do China do this? And um, my next question. Yeah, a couple of historical analogies here. One, China likes likes more control, right? They play by different rules than we do in the West. So in I think it was in the late 1800s, China went all in on silver when they should have went all in on gold. That set them back 50 years. Um, and then also a, a more fun example, I think it was in the 1400s, maybe the 1500s, 
Um, China was the dominant uh, navy. They had the tallest trees, so they had the best and fastest ships. So they controlled the seas. And then the merchant class who owned these ships they burned got all the too ship. powerful. Yeah, they burned yeah, all the ships. The, they didn't want to have this merchant class overtake the government. Yeah, I, they got I remember the reading navy. about this. They gave the seas to Europe. And if they didn't make that geopolitical blunder, we'd probably be speaking Chinese in America because China would have came from um, the Pacific, colonized the U.S. from the West. And so those are a couple examples. This is the third one are in these China's just big inst- geopolitical blunders. I wouldn't say these are like China blunders. I would say these are like blunders of large central government because if you look back, it's like at the time, you know, China was had this, the way it's kind of run is like this highly centralized. Let me talk about billions of people being run by like effectively five people in a room, right? That's what it is. I mean, that's just an insane idea to think about. So, but at the same time, you could kind of like, if you ever see that movie, oh, when like Stalin died and it was like a cheeky, funny movie and they were all like trying to bring his body out of the room and stuff like that. All this former Soviet, like, uh, 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 I forgot the name of the movie and it's a podcast. I can pause and probably Google it, but it doesn't matter. The point is that like when you have a bunch of people trying to solve the problems for the many, it generally doesn't work out. So like you said, now we're like rebuilding these institutions, but in a more distributed, decentralized way. Um, tell me about Swan Bitcoin and, and why you love working for, for a company that focuses largely on Bitcoin. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, just to wrap up central versus decentral in China, you're right. I don't mean to pick on China specifically. I'm more using them as a proxy for centralized control. And centralization has its benefits, right? You, you centralize decision-making, which makes it very efficient to make decisions. And you can turn the ship very quickly. China can say, go put 30 nuclear plants in our country. And next year, they're going to start building them. In the U.S., sure. it would take us a decade of horse trading and, and all this bureaucracy. However, that bureaucracy and that decentralized nature that makes America good, um, okay, maybe we're less efficient, but we're also more resilient, right? Our, our government and our constitution, how we do things has, is the longest lasting form of government in modern times. So clearly there's something good about it. And um, we don't have the downside risks that China does for making these blunders or the risk of authoritarian control over its people. So there are trade-offs. I much prefer the centralized model. Yeah, same. In America, in Bitcoin. Um, with regards to Swan, yes, um, we are a Bitcoin-only exchange. Um, we, I absolutely love working there. I'll start with that. Uh, we have about 50 employees. Everyone is wow. a hardcore Bitcoiner. And the thing, for me, this is unique. I've never worked in a company where every single employee is ideologically aligned on Bitcoin's mission, right? Every company says they have a vision statement or a mission or all these corporate whatever. That's nonsense. That is that might work with 20 employees. That doesn't work with 200. It doesn't it doesn't scale. And I think being aligned under Bitcoin's flag might actually scale. Like when we show up in meetings, everyone's on the same page. It's question one. Is this good for Bitcoin? Question two. Is this good for Swan? And that changes the culture. It changes the relationships. It changes the motivation. And so I would say I can't go back to working for a company that the people aren't mission driven. Um, It's totally changed things for me. Um, what is Swan? We sell Bitcoin. Uh, we're, we're more or less an exchange in the U.S. We have two primary sides of our business. We have the retail side. So you can go to swanbitcoin.com. You can buy Bitcoin in many different ways. Most of our customers have an automatic savings plan. So they buy 
let's say 500 bucks a month or 50 bucks a week or you know 100 bucks a day or whatever plan you set That's up smart. set up a plan automate it hit go and i think most people should invest in bitcoin this way just a little bit each week whatever you can afford over the long term and then we also have a um, high net worth business or practice we call swan private you can think of it like morgan morgan stanley private client services but this is where you get a little more hand-holding. You'll get a one-on-one rep. You can text them. You can call them. You can get tax planning advice. You know, Stefan Levera is one of our reps. You can talk to him about oh, that's storage, so cool. all these kind of things. And uh, one little rep. bit of insider baseball is that a lot of baby boomers are buying Bitcoin right now. Most people don't think that, but they're starting to be um, piling the in, in a ones. large way. They're the smartest ones. The older generations are the smartest ones because they understand they're starting to see it may take them time, but they understand the best out of better than, than, than you and I could ever understand that the older generations understand where the world is now as it relates to the larger context of things. And we just never lived through that. So, so they've lived through this. Like think of the world as like this, everything, like this is the best analogy is like you throw a, you throw a, a one of those bouncy balls down a hallway it's going to bounce hard in the beginning, up, down, but then eventually it'll, you know, level itself out. It'll just start rolling. Everything is just extreme. You know, the, the new deal, the, the, the financial world that we have today from, like you said, the IMF, the federal reserve, central banking, uh, what we see is like the modern day investment banking, modern day retail banking. That's all like what the, the world that existed before that we just went, we just had the, the Christmas season who watched, what was it? Life is beautiful or the world is beautiful. I forget the name of that movie. And it was about the bank run in the 1920s. So the bank run, like that movie, that Christmas movie, when the banks all failed and everything like that, that's what the world. So you have one extreme and then we went to the next extreme and Bitcoin and the world that the next wave is that middle ground. So we taking some, you know, we're taking history and we're building that middle. And that's where we are in the context of today. And that's why, like you said, the boomers, the baby boomers are buying Bitcoin, and that's why it's called Boomer Coin. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Theoretically, older generations have more accumulated experience, so they are wiser, right? They're slower um, to act, though. Yeah, I, I think there's also this thing where the boomers are looking out to the future, and they see all the changes in the world as well, right? They've seen a world that um, has changed more in the last 24 months than most of their life combined. And so in that type of context, they're, they're starting to say, huh, I wonder if my pension's safe. I wonder if my savings are safe. Um, they're printing all this money. Maybe I should get a little bit of this boomer coin uh, to protect my wealth, which I think makes sense. And I, I hope the older generations don't watch their retirement accounts get drained uh, in purchasing power due to yeah. inflation. And if, if we can protect that, even if they put 5% of their wealth in Bitcoin, I think that's uh, plenty for them to survive. Um, and yeah, I'm optimistic about that. My parents are boomers. I would like them to benefit from this wave as well. And so actually one more thing about Swan, if I can plug, we just launched a, a gifting service. And I say this right around oh, the holidays. Cool. So if you want to gift Bitcoin to your family members or friends who are on the fence, you can go to swanbitcoin.com slash gifts and you can just send them, you know, 20 bucks, $21 actually is the minimum, but you can send them a little Bitcoin gift. They get an email, they accept the gift. We educate them through email. Um, and so you kind of help push them over the edge. And what we found is that people who don't have any Bitcoin yet, uh, 
they need a little bit, even if it's $21 worth, a little bit gives them skin in the game and that incentivizes them to pay attention and actually learn about this thing. And so I consider it kind of a secret way to orange pill your friends and family. <laughs> yeah. Every, every time I've given Bitcoin to someone as a gift, uh, what they do is they'll put in how much Bitcoin they have in their like little app. And every time you see that person like, oh, and they're like, you know, you want to check your, your Bitcoin, you want to check your crypto. It's like, it's a fun thing to do. It's like a habit. And so, yeah, gifting, gifting has been one of the uh, most pleasurable, joyous experiences in the whole entire world. When you give someone a gift, especially when you give them the gift of Bitcoin, there's no better. There's nothing better than that because it's going to be the gift that keeps on giving. They're going to thank you every year, every day. It's constant. It's all the time. Hey, I wanted to, I wanted to, to ask you, um, kind of looking into the future, one of the things that our generation or really anyone who's below the age of 40, um, never really, or 50 really, never dealt with this like uh, inflation term, but really is, as I like to just really call it, is like a, 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 a CPI of like over 5%. Do you think where costs of things are going up more than 5% a year? And to me, that's like unacceptable. We're sitting around 7% right now. Do you think we should dig in and get comfortable with this just being a thing that we need to mentally have in our head. Like when we get our paychecks, we know how much is being taken out of taxes. Should we, for the next 10 years, just start planning for like this loss of purchasing power year over year where I've never experienced that for my whole adult life. I've never experienced that. Does that, is this something now I have to start thinking about when I work and spend money and save? Yeah, I think the short answer is yes. Right. They, they gave us a, an inflation rate of around 6%. Okay. Um, that's, you know, an aggregate of goods in the market. But if you look at real estate, real estate's up like 15 to 20%. Monthly. It's up a lot more. And so if, if you, it depends what you individually want to own, right? The things that are attractive to own, like real estate or a good education or financial assets, right? Stock market's at an all time high. Owning assets is going up way higher than five, six percent or whatever they tell us. And so if you are a rational individual looking to plan for your future, um, you would be prudent to own assets that outpace this inflation. And right now that looks like Bitcoin is the best uh, best asset to achieve that goal. Um, and the other question, so everyone should own some in my mind. Yeah. Um, if you look to the future, this decade, can we expect this or is this just a temporary thing? Um, if we look to history, the previous time we were in a serious uh, situation like this was the 30s and the 40s. And we're in a situation where there's so much debt. And what do we do to get rid of this debt? So governments and corporations are in, in massive debt. So number one, they could go into austerity measures, meaning we stop spending dramatically for 10 years and we slowly get the debt under control. Um, there's no political appetite for this. There's, there's no way we're going to do that. No way. That's out. The other question is, uh, we could outpace uh, this debt by having tremendous growth in the economy. Well, structurally, the economy does not look set up for tremendous growth. So what we would actually need is a, a white swan event, like we invent nuclear fission, or we can all of a sudden do some new technology that just changes everything overnight. Uh, possible, but pretty unlikely. I don't see that happening. So the third option is financial repression. And I think that this is what we're going to experience yeah. this decade. What do I mean by financial repression? I mean that inflation rates are higher than the yields in all bonds. 
And so it's essentially a decade where the number, the nominal price of assets, so the dollar price of assets continues to go up, but the purchasing power of those assets actually goes down in real terms over oh, wow. this decade. And this is what happened in the, the 30s and 40s. Um, I recommend reading Lynn Alden's work on this to get a deeper understanding here if this interests you. But essentially, but own hard assets because all bonds and most equities are going to underperform real inflation. But Brandon, so the last the time decade, the last yeah. time this happened, and the world had no way to like print more money, right? In the 30s, World War II was started because Germany had just this immense debt and was pushing their debt and all austerity and hyperinflation onto its people. And then you had a radical fanatic Hitler come about and we all know how what happened there. But then when we had that great reset in 1945, we went that other extreme and we created the monetary system that we know uh, that we have today. And we, we led into Bretton Woods and we led into to, to Jekyll Island and everything kind of came out of all of this stuff in, the, in those same decades. And that was the other extreme. I'm a little bit nervous because when we remove both opportunities with World War II, I mean, how do we, where does this lead us? Does it lead us to World War III? Does it lead us to a great, immense white swan event where it's like the complete opposite of a world war? Like, that's kind of what I think about all the time. Because for the first time in my life, I felt that governments are feeling they're losing control. And that's the scariest thing in the world. When they start to feel like they're losing control, that's when real shit is going to start to hit the fan. Yeah, I think that's a really profound point. Um, for example, a dog back, a, a nice, happy dog that loves humans is friendly. When it's off a leash, it can roam freely and you can pet it. However, if you back that same dog into a corner, it has no way out. The dog all of a sudden becomes vicious to protect itself. Entirely natural response. I think the same parallel plays out in the state. When they have control of things, the economy is booming, people are happy, it's fine. But when things are going very poorly, the state gets greedy, they, they, they steal more power, and they take drastic action that hurts the people. And if we look at the 30s, for an example, um, what happened? Okay, right after the Great Depression, FDR's New Deal, we're trying to get out of this financial mess, and the government chooses financial repression, just like they're choosing right now. And in order to try to make that policy effective, um, FDR essentially made owning gold illegal in 1933. It oh, was yeah. called Executive Order 6102. He essentially said, U.S. citizens, I'm stealing all your gold. Your property rights are now invalid because the government said so. And that's not cool, first of all. Uh, it violates the social contract of governments and individuals. And it also forces the economic repression onto the citizens, okay? The same thing could be said right now. They're looking at ways to ensure all citizens are screwed equally by this, this hard times that the government created. And so during this time, governments get greedy. In the 30s, they raised, raised the marginal income tax rate up over 70%. They took away your access to gold, right? And so they took away a lot of freedoms in, in this process. And I think the same is gonna happen in this decade. So I consider uh, the government will go after low-hanging fruit first. This would be uh, pensions, social security accounts, real estate, whatever is easy to tax or easy to confiscate. I consider that to be higher risk. Um, 
Bitcoin would be a target for this confiscation because I think it's going to uh, garner a lot of wealth. But at the same time, it's not possible for the government to take someone's Bitcoin. Yeah, it would create a Streisand um, effect. It would create a Streisand effect. As soon as they start attacking it, it, it highlights the fact it. that yeah. it's needed. And you can't take it away. <laughs> exactly. And people are like, well, that's not going to happen. Okay, let's look at Nigeria. Nigeria, Nigerian people, um, they want to modernize. They want access to financial services. So they started using Bitcoin and it works great. And then the government says, oh, crap, all the people are using Bitcoin. We can't have that. So they temporarily made Bitcoin illegal. What happened? Uh, adoption skyrocketed. The whole country uh, chose to adopt it at a higher rate. Now I think it's over 30% uh, of the yeah. people in Nigeria own or use Bitcoin. And so it backfired on the government. And then the government said, oops, sorry, never mind. We can't enforce this law. And the same thing will happen in the geopolitical game theory with Bitcoin. Yeah. Some countries will ban it. Other countries will embrace it. And you can't, you can't turn off the internet. You just push innovation out of your country. You can't turn off Bitcoin. You just push your citizens out from this potential opportunity. So I actually want to give you a little, some cool tidbit about the Nigeria situation. I was talking to Ray, who owns Paxful.com, and they do huge amounts of money transfers of Bitcoin all over the world, helping people, remittances, Philippines, Nigeria, Pakistan, things like that. And he gave me this actually cool tidbit of information. We had him on the show about Nigeria and its adoption rate. So because the adoption rate is so high, I don't know if you remember, like the biggest argument against Bitcoin being a remittance was that, yeah, you have to buy Bitcoin, send it, then sell it. He's like, well, in Nigeria now, Bitcoin is considered the multi-decade long-term savings of these large families. And these large families have people, have brothers and sisters who live everywhere in the world who want to support the family back home. And so Bitcoin has become this like global bucket bank account for families for long-term wealth, where you can have Nigerians working, living all over the world, contributing to this massive family like bank account. And it's just blew my mind. Insane. That's what's happening. Wow, that, yeah. That is so powerful. And I have such immense respect for Ray Youssef, uh, CEO of Paxful, for doing this, right? He, he's from Egypt. He has a, Africa has a special place in his heart. He's focusing his energy there, um, both for personal reasons, but also because the opportunity is ripe, right? I think there's over 2,000 financial networks in Africa, and almost all of them don't speak to each other. So Ray comes in by leveraging the Bitcoin network to connect individuals all across the continent so they can do trade without being uh, locked in their sort of siloed separate financial networks. So tremendous respect there. I want to see him succeed. He already Same. is succeeding. And your point about the diaspora is unique too, right? It's Nigerians so cool. all over the world sending money home, looking to the future, building. That is an amazing sight to see. That's like kind of the, let's, let's leave off the, the, the listeners and the community with that positive good news because that's really where the world is heading into. It's like more control, the family, the community, the home is a, as a sanctuary. Um, so like you said, I've noticed a lot more of like change in the world, but I don't know, if, but I, I feel like social interactions and mental health has become a top priority for people going in in the last year and the next years. And I, for one, think that is like a super positive thing. There's nothing better than more close friendships, more relationships, uh, being around people, having laughing without 
you know, I say like laughing without costing money. Like uh, how much fun can you have without having to spend? Try to go a few days without spending any money. Can you do it? Does your does your social and does your social, does your well-being, does your mental state, does it rely on, you know, you spending any money? Then maybe take a step back and think about that for a minute. One of the reasons I moved down to Florida. But Brandon, Brandon, thank you so much for coming on Untold Stories today. We freaking amazing show. Like awesome. Thanks, Riley. Really, really appreciate it as well. And you're totally right about mental health. Um, I think as a modern industrial society, we're living in our heads too much right now. We think we can just engineer all these problems away. And okay, yeah, I love technology as much as the next guy, but we need to go back to the basics of what, it, what does our meat suit need? Yeah. And our meat suit needs good food, good friendships, good community, sunlight, and meaning. Whether the meaning comes from work or from charity or from anything or raising a family, Whatever it is, we need the basics. We need to make our meat suit happy. Mental health follows. I like that. And I want to actually, that's that's what we should toast everyone to and with my coffee and wish everyone a good year of 2022. I hope if you've if you found your purpose and your meaning, I hope that this year gives you more success and happiness in it. But if you've not found that yet, I wish you uh, all the success, Brandon. We wish you all the success and anything else that you want to say. Thanks a bunch, Charlie. Cheers to that. Um, If any of this was interesting to you, come say hello. My DMs on Twitter are open. My handle is bquitem, B-Q-U-I-T-T-E-M. You can find all my writings at my personal website, brandonquitem.com. And if you want to try out Swan, I'll give you $10 in free Bitcoin, swanbitcoin.com slash quitem, Q-U-I-T-T-E-M, my last name. We'll put all of that on the show notes. We'll put all of that Appreciate in the show it. notes. So to check out the show notes and click those links to get hey, 10 bucks and free Bitcoin, you get to talk to Brandon and a lot of those Bitcoin OGs. Thank you. I'll talk to you later. Thanks, Charlie. Have a good one.